0: The first thing for me is recognising and removing our provocative load. Now for the peritendon, that's movement. Mm. And the reason why it's an important one to differentiate is I can't give these people calf raises because Mm. it's movement. But someone with a mid-portion or an insertional Achilles, calf raises is a fantastic start point
1: endonopathy it's super common we all see a lot of it clinically and the research is very fluid it's moving we've seen things about isometrics eccentrics heavy slow resistance so how do we know where to start well today we've brought you dr ebony rio now ebony is so well researched in this area she's a researcher at la trobe university and she's currently working at the Victorian Institute of Sport. She is absolutely wonderful in this area. She's got clinical experience working with the AIS and the Winter Olympics, as well as the Australian Ballet. I can't think of anyone better to talk to about this topic. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I'm Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explain. Hello, Ebony. Thank you for joining us to talk about tendons.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for the invitation.
1: No problem. We're going to get straight into it. My first question was, with all this knowledge you've accumulated, is where do we start with tendons now and and how do we start? Because I was mentioning to you off air, I got a little confused wanting to start with isometrics. It used to be heavy eccentrics and it's always patient-centered and individualized. But what tips would you have about that?
0: Yeah, that, that is an excellent place to start. So I think where we need to start with tendons is to always understand um, that it is patient-centered. And the critical component of that is to listen to your patient. And that actually really helps us with our differential diagnosis. That's the first thing. So in terms of where we start with tendons, we want to make sure that we are giving um, appropriate advice and that we think we have someone with tendinopathy. So the key diagnostic criteria are that they have really localized pain that's related to high tendon load. So this is not pain with palpation. Um, this is not pain with low tendon load. And just to give you an example, in the patella tendon, it can be incredibly sensitive even in people with knee osteoarthritis. Mm. But I wouldn't imagine that clinically you're going to give the same program to someone you know that has knee OA and tendinopathy. So, differential diagnosis matters when you um, create different advice and different treatment plans. So, to understand tendon load, you need to know that in our lower limb, most of them act like a spring. Mm. And anything that's fast is what's high tendon load. So, it's got to be fast for it to be high tendon load. So, you know, then Michael, for the Achilles, that's things like, you know, um, running and hopping. But actually we use our Achilles tendon like a spring throughout the lifespan, which is why clinically we can see a really heterogeneous group of people from, you know, young athletic people to our older, more sedentary. But the patellar tendon is quite different. We pretty much only use the patellar tendon like a spring with, you know, really explosive jumping. Um, So that's... Um, gives you an idea then of who you see clinically, you know, young elite jumping men and almost no one else. Um, You want to be able to recognize compression in tendons because clinically, it's a really nice one to remove. It really helps us a lot with pain. Um, And knowing that that energy storage combined with compression is our most provocative load, but also what tendons are designed to do. So we shouldn't be scared about getting people back to it. The final load to really understand is that friction load and that's what I was talking about in terms of differential because if you give someone with a peritendin issue of the Achilles um, isometrics or heavy eccentrics or any of those things, they're going to do badly. Um, So we can reverse engineer that actually and say that someone with tendinopathy is someone that responds well to things that are static or slow, because by definition, they're really safe for the tendon. Does that make mm, sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that. I've got so many questions already.
0: <laughs> Great.
1: When you said local tenderness, for clarity, would you be saying that this is probably not a tendonopathy if it's a more vague and a, along the whole Achilles? You're looking for like pinpoint tenderness to diagnose it. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, great pickup. And and thank you for clarifying because it is such an important point. When we're talking about the insertion, people can localize with one finger. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about the mid portion, they tend to pinch, um, but they don't move up and down their tendon. As soon as someone is moving up and down their tendon, I do want you to really be aware of that peritendon. They're actually trying to show you the peritendon. And so what that person will do is they'll describe different provocative loads. They'll describe non- tendon load or low tendon load like cycling, because that's a lot of repetition where you're gliding the peritendon over the Achilles. So this will be someone that um, might've got a new bike or might've done a big ride. So that's your first key point in the subjective. The second key point is around tendon pain behavior. So we talk about pain that remains localized, but also knowing that there's a bit more to it. Tendon pain warms up, so if you have someone with tendinopathy, they can feel a little bit stiff and grumbly at the start. Then they get better, but it's something like a peritendon gets worse the longer they go. So even in a runner, Michael, if you have someone who says, "Actually, I don't feel it till I'm you know at least five kilometres in," again, be aware that that could be the peritendon. Even though running is heightened and load, if their calf capacity isn't good enough and they um they foot strike, if their calves have worn out, they'll start to go through big ranges of motion, they'll start to you know excuse. Is that a word? They'll start to move the peritendon over the tendon repeatedly, and that's why they get worse the longer they go. So we want to put all of their story together, which is why listening and really um, paying attention to the detail and the subjective is so important. So yes, it's very local. Um, our lovely exception would be our glute med. Um, our older women with gluteal um, tendinopathy or gluteal, um, you know, bursitis. You know that that compressive issue because of all the bursa they get referral down the leg that's very common but usually not past the knee Mm.
1: that's we're going to go deeper into tendinopathy but just quickly I want to know what would what do you do differently for the peritendon versus the tendinopathy which we're about to get into
0: Yep. So if we're thinking of a peritendon, actually, if we're thinking of any condition associated, the first thing for me is recognizing and removing our provocative load. Now for the peritendon, that's movement. Mm. And the reason why it's an important one to differentiate is I can't give these people calf raises because Mm. it's movement, but someone with a mid-portion or an insertional Achilles, calf raises is a fantastic start point and it's critical. So what I do differently for the peritendon is we have some strategies for... reducing the irritation of that peritendon, but they have to go hand in hand with reducing the movement. So if that person is cycling, they need to stop cycling. If they're just walking around, you might consider getting them in a shoe with a higher heel so they don't go through as much range of motion while they're walking. Um, so these these different strategies. And a few years ago, I would have said that you could, you know, try isometrics to try and keep them going. They hate it. It bunches up the peritendon. It's, they hate you. Don't do it.
1: (laughs) Good info. That was a selfish question. I'm going to get into the tendinopathy. So what's the research currently telling us about isometrics, eccentrics and HSR, heavy slow resistance? where, Where are you leaning to?
0: Yeah, I what I'd like everyone to really take away is that I, I want everyone to be evidence based but not recipe driven. Mm. You will never be able to go to the research and take the protocol for every patient. So do all of those things have a role? Of course they do. And clinically you work out what combination you might use, but you could never just give someone an isometric exercise and expect that you've restored their their strength and their strength endurance and their capacity and their energy storage, and you know, made them tolerant to compression, and and that whole continuum. And same with eccentrics, same with heavy slow resistance. If we're thinking of our tendons of being a spring, we need the uh, the base. We need excellent strength and capacity in our muscles so that we have a really strong scaffold for our tendon to work off. Mm. But then we actually need to sort of sneak up on the tendon. Tendons hate change. So it would need to be very progressive. So um, to answer your question, it will never be one or the other. What I'd like everyone to do is work out how each bit of research can be integrated to build on their toolkit. Because those things are part of our toolkit. And as physios, it's our it's our um, clinical reasoning to work out when to use them. So, to give you an example, I love heavy slow resistance. I use it, but I don't use the protocol that was published. And I'll tell you why. It was double leg. And we know from previous research that people with unilateral tendinopathy have asymmetries. So, if I'm giving a double-leg protocol, I'm actually not addressing those asymmetries. So, what I want to do is take the previous research about um, differences in uh, symptomatic and asymptomatic sides, layer in, you know, heavy slow resistance, but actually combine them rather than throwing out everything that's been done before. And it's the same with isometrics. I would not say that that replaces any of your rehabilitation. It's a tool that you might use as a way in, particularly for people if they're a bit fearful about doing something. It's a really safe um, load to start with. So it can be really good for their confidence and their self-efficacy. But is that all you should do? Oh my gosh, no.
1: I love that. I'm an I'm an average physio with a bias towards strengthening. So I want you to tell me if I'm oversimplifying this because I think you'll have some pearls. I used to base it on irritability or aggravating the patient. So if someone was highly irritable, I would start with isometrics. If someone wasn't that irritable and I was confident it was tendinopathy, I would bias to, to go to eccentrics or HSR. Can you tell me what's wrong with that thought pattern or is there anything right with it? Hit me with that.
0: Yeah, I think it's really good that you're being thoughtful about um, the person in front of you and and how you'll sort of shape those decisions. So the key thing for me is um, we need to work out what the deficits are for the person and what their goals are. And um, Jill Cook and Sean Docking did this beautifully a few years ago in editorial, which talked about current capacity and goals. Because then what you can do is break down each of those steps. So the decision to start with isometrics or isotonics at the start, both of those are safe loads for tendons. Mm. If it's slow or it's static, then by definition, if it's a tendinopathy, you're laughing, um, you know. Again, contrast that with something like the patellofemoral joint, where a heavy isometric leg extension actually might provoke them. Um, so again, it can actually help you with your your differential and your your clinical decision making. Um, so, in terms of where to start, it can be based on a lot of things. I had a ultra marathon runner who had seen a lot of a lot of physios and been given a lot of different advice, had a lot of interventions and he could do six calf raises. Mm. Now he wants to run 160 kilometers. So we didn't start with isometrics. We just got going. Actually, pain wasn't a big feature because he was so unloaded. He needed load. So we started with strength endurance. We started with strength in the gym. So, I think there's no right or wrong answer as long as people are thoughtful about what they start with and that they are addressing that person's individual deficits.
1: Tell me I'm wrong, Ebony, it's okay, but it sounds like the better measure is like what their goal is and what their previous capacity was rather than what I was saying about irritability. Is that, would that be about right?
0: It can be, but irritability can definitely feed in, particularly if they um, are, you know, anxious Mm. Um, and a really irritable tendon or a person with a really irritable tendon will need a lot of education around, um, you know, if, if you have pain with exercise and I'm giving you an exercise, but I haven't dealt with the fact that these are safe loads and teaching people about what is the provocative load and what is the safe load, then, you know, people may not be adherent. So, as David Butler would say, just meeting people at their story and really making sure they understand um, what... What is safe to do? Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned with irritability, particularly early, because you're not giving um, high tendon load. You you're mm. removing that load, but just teaching people when to listen. So to listen 24 hours after the load.
1: There's a study that's coming back to me talking about irritability. I believe it was on jumper's knee, and it was volleyball players, so athletes that are experienced with loading. And I think they pushed into pain and did quite aggressive exercises and found they had a better outcome. Is that is that coming to mind for you?
0: There's a couple of different studies that have looked at whether or not you um, whether or not uh, it's okay to push into pain. And in fact, the original eccentric work was almost based on um, progressing, you know, trying to get people to that level. So again, I think it's really individual. Some people. Um, This is why I never like giving a number because Mm. for some people, you know, five out of 10 pain, you know, they always play with it. It's just not an issue. For some people, five out of 10 pain is completely unacceptable. So we talk about symptoms that are low and stable. So what I'm looking for is, um, increasing our load while, um, people can maintain or reduce their 24-hour pain. So, their symptoms are low and stable. So, that doesn't need to be zero. And again, that's a really important education point for people. You're trying to aim for low and stable symptoms.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that. The, the question I was, I was going to ask you, which I think you've answered, but I reckon you've got a bit more there. What's, what's really changed for you in the last three to five years with what you've learned and what you've studied? How has that actually changed your clinical practice?
0: Oh, I'm going to have to say the brain here. So um, a much better understanding of pain, thanks to particularly Laura Mosley and David Butler. So pain is produced by the brain 100% of the time. That doesn't matter if it's a paper cut, chronic low back pain or tendinopathy, your brain will produce pain to protect you. And in the case of tendons, that's quite useful because it tries to stop us overloading and doing really silly things. Um, the other thing for me is the changes around the motor cortex and how we might need to incorporate some of those principles into our rehabilitation to really improve our outcomes for people with tendinopathy, that it isn't just about tendon load and muscle load and kinetic chain. We actually need to appreciate the spinal cord and brain and just how complex it is.
1: Mm. I love that. And that's, we're talking more chronic pain, persistent pain strategies we might use rather than just considering the tendon.
0: Yep. And critical to that would be um, that we shouldn't reserve things like, you know, education only if we think we're dealing with, you know, chronic pain. Everyone deserves that respect of language and that that education. And a good example would be something like tendinitis. If people are using terms like tendinitis, their underlying um, uh, understanding of the condition is that it's inflammatory and you will probably not be able to convince them to do exercise because their understanding of what they need to do for that condition is likely based on, you know, rest, ice, anti-inflammatories. So just making sure our biopsychosocialness actually um, translates across Every aspect of patient care, so the terminology we use, you know how we empower them, um, so that it all marries up. You know, if we if people are saying things like tendonitis and then we're giving exercise, we're we're probably doing them a disservice about um, you know really educating them about their body and their condition. Hmm.
1: Ebony, I think that would be a wonderful second chat with you about the central changes in tendonitis. But for now, you I did think
0: not say tendinitis. Tendonitis, tendonitis
1: <gasps> means it's inflamed. I can't believe I just said that after you just went on that rant. And so I, I was even in this discussion about um, would it matter if therapists use that? But I love how you outlined that. If therapists are using it, patients are probably thinking it's inflammation, which. And then what do you reckon voice. they're
0: Googling? Absolutely. And in fact, we're just starting a study on that. But the key thing, so there's actually a great paper by Nickel. It's a systematic review and they looked at the impact of uh, terminology on what people thought they needed to do about the condition. And these vast differences, even in terms of fracture, if you're saying crack in the bone versus broken bone as to whether or not people think they need a cast.
1: Mm, language is is so important I, i love that you've brought that up thank you so much well i think that i think that summary you just gave us is a great place to end it so i'll leave it there and thank you so much for your time today ebony
0: oh thanks so much for having me
1: thank you